you'll see the trend continue where mortgage will certainly be a product, but I don't think you're going to see significant investment in MSRs, significant investment in their servicing platforms. I, I just don't see that trend reversing. And with the new proposed capital rules, I, th- I think that only exacerbates you know, the issue and will lead more institutions uh, to start thinking about, hey, we probably need to sell some MSRs. When we think about the $4 trillion, Obviously, a big piece of that's IMBs. We know there's a couple large institutions selling MSRs as we speak, and I think more will join that list. So far in 2023, Mr. Cooper has announced two major acquisitions, including HomePoint Capital and Roosevelt Management Company. With these two deals, Mr. Cooper is that much closer to its goal of managing over $1 trillion in mortgage servicing rights, which we're going to refer to in this conversation as MSRs. I'm Clayton Collins, CEO of HW Media and your host for the Housing News Podcast. Today's guest is Mr. Cooper CEO, Jay Bray. Jay talks about these two acquisitions and why the Roosevelt deal may in fact be a game changer for the servicing space. We go deep into MSR valuation and the trends worth watching with independent mortgage banks and depository lending institutions that are retaining and selling MSRs. I hope you learn as much as I did from this conversation with Jay Bray. He really drops a lot of expertise and knowledge, and I am so grateful for his generosity and what he shared today. I hope you enjoy the conversation with Jay Bray, CEO of Mr. Cooper. Jay, welcome to Housing News. Thrilled to have you today. Thanks, Clayton. Uh, Very glad to be here. Appreciate you having me on. So, Jay, when we booked this conversation and put it on the calendar, I was was excited from day one. We have a a multiple-time Tech 100 winner for Mr. Cooper, Housing (laughs) Wire, Industry Vanguard, and you. But to be completely honest, it's gotten even more exciting for me since we booked it because you are now my own, my personal mortgage servicer, which you weren't. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm now officially a, uh, a Mr. Cooper customer through the acquisition of, of HomePoint Capital. So I'd love to, you know, kind of kick off and, and learn more about what my mortgage servicer is up to in the acquisition <laughs> strategy. I'm just kidding around, but I do have a mortgage with you. Um, so well, you're going to have to give me f- some feedback along the way as as you uh, experience the journey. <laughs> I, I I will I, I will um, I'll, I'm going to reach out to you directly uh, with, with <laughs> I like it with issues. <laughs> um, all right, Jay. So so busy busy year. You guys have uh, you're you're navigating this uh, mortgage market that's you know had it had its ups and downs and lots of change at the same time. Put a couple new acquisitions under the belt with the the announcement of the closing the Home Point Capital acquisition and Roosevelt Management Company. Um, I think the Home Point deal has gotten a lot of attention in the industry. So can we start there? T- tell us about that acquisition which you just announced in August, but we know has been in the works for quite a bit longer than that. Sure, absolutely. Uh, glad to talk about it. You know, Home Point. You know, we've uh, we've know the management team there well. Uh, know the Stone Point folks really well. We've talked to them kind of you know over the years about um, different strategic options. And you know, as we entered the year, you know, we felt like that there was going to be 
an opportunity to buy, you know, some MSRs and, um, and home point presented a wonderful opportunity. I mean, they had a, you know, large portfolio, um, you know, predominantly Fannie Freddie and really fit our wheelhouse. And we just felt like, you know, that made a ton of sense and we could add it to our platform, you know, without a lot of incremental costs and, um, and continue to grow the platform, you know, that we've discussed, you know, over the years. And so it just, it made a lot of sense for us and it's, uh, you know, it's been a smooth process so far. We've gotten the approval to actually, uh, close on that. We did close on it and we'll board it here in the next, you know, couple quarters. So really excited about it. And strategically it just made a ton of sense for us, uh, because it fits so well with the platform. What's different about acquiring a, a business or the assets of the business like home point capital versus buying an MSR portfolio and a different type of transaction. Like how does this, how does the complexion of this deal look in difference of just buying an MSR portfolio from a, an IMB um, in terms of deal structure and integration and all the considerations of m and Yeah, this one is pretty simple because what home point had done over the last, you know, call it year is they really had simplified their operation. And so, you know, once we got to the stage where we were able to execute on a transaction, really, Clayton, all that was left was predominantly uh, the servicing asset, and the servicing asset was being subservice. So they just didn't have a ton of, you know, operations, a ton of people that were, you know, supporting that asset. So it was almost like buying an MSR asset. If you contrast that you know, with call it Roosevelt or a Pacific Union transaction we did a few years ago, there you're actually buying the company and you're buying the people, you're buying the platforms, et cetera. Obviously that's that's much more complicated. And so there you have to go through an integration process, you have to integrate the team members, integrate the systems, et cetera. And so, you know, our our we've done more, I would say, asset uh, transactions than really true company or platform transactions in the past. We can certainly do either, but uh, the complexity of HomePoint was pretty simple because they had really, you know, simplified their operation. So that that's really the way to think about it. So at that stage in HomePoint's journey, there there wasn't a lot of human capital coming with the transaction. Uh, assets were being subserviced. Do you pull the MS, the servicing rights into Mr. Cooper's servicing capability or do you keep the subservicer around? How does that transition work? No, we typically pull the subservicing into our platform. You know, we, we view our platform as, you know, if not the most efficient, one of the most efficient platforms out there. And so with our scale, our size, you know, our profitability, it always makes sense, you know, to move it onto our platform. Now there may be a period of time that we keep it at the subservicer just from a, you know, logistic standpoint, approval standpoint, et cetera. But, but we generally always move it to our you know, platform. Have there been any like surprise challenges with the, the integration of the acquisition so far, or, or maybe the other side, any opportunities that have been uncovered? You know, I think I don't think there's really been any surprises. I mean, we typically do quite a bit of diligence coming into, you know, these acquisitions. And so I think everything has gone extremely smooth, uh, certainly on home point. Again, it's a pretty straightforward and simple. On the Roosevelt Rushmore transaction, 
again, I don't think there's any surprises there. Strategically, you know, with Roosevelt, we think there's a lot of opportunity to, you know, raise third-party capital to eventually to deploy into mm-hmm. future MSR acquisitions. So, you know, we're really excited about that. I mean, we're in the early innings of that, but we really looked at kind of the Roosevelt Rushmore deal as a acquiring the Rushmore platform gave us, you know, even more special servicing capability. And that market obviously is in a little bit of disarray. And so we view that as a real opportunity. And then with Roosevelt, you know, we got a registered investment advisor that will, you know, will be able to raise third party capital. And uh, we're, we're excited about that. I'd say we're in the middle innings there. So we still have a ways to go, but, uh, but super excited about it. So on the Roosevelt deal, so Mr. Mr. Cooper, RDA public company with access to public equity markets, I, I don't understand how like the RIA brings additional, uh, you know, additional access to capital. Can you, can you give us a walkthrough of how owning a registered investment advisor and in RIA and Roosevelt increases your access to capital already being a publicly traded company? Yeah, it really, what it does is even though we're public, it's a bit inefficient to continue to tap the equity markets, you know, for MSR purchases, if you will. Yeah. Um, you can do it, but you know, you dilute your existing shareholders. It's, uh, you know, uh, the cost of capital is sometimes prohibitive. Um, and so this just allows, gives us really a, a permanent capital vehicle that we can continue to raise additional funds or continue to add to a single fund and, um, and just makes it, you know, it's, it's a more efficient way to do it, we think. And, and, and frankly, both from a cost and a process standpoint. Okay, so like Mr. Cooper, as the the publicly traded entity, kind of operates as the the opco, and then you can use the RIA to to launch and raise capital and 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 in funds that are specific to like a certain MSR tranche or, or acquisition or subsidiary. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Really interesting. And then, does Roosevelt have a an employee base of investment advisors across the country who can like kind of act as a, a distribution tool for, for those funds or how, how does that work? They, they do. They have a small team that, um, you know, has raised capital in the past from third, third parties. And so we'll retain that team and are working with them as we speak to, you know, kind of map out what the plan is with respect, you know, which investors do we want to go talk to, what investors, you know, are, have we have they used in the past, and ones that we're familiar with as well? And so, yeah, we'll retain that team and, and really use them as the fundraising arm uh, for that vehicle. Interesting. So, before the Roosevelt acquisition, were you using public or private equity to to fund MSR purchases, or did you already have some type of fund structure um, that was inside of the business for for different purchases or tranches of MSRs? Really, historically, the I would say the majority of capital that we raised for MSR purchases was through the unsecured debt market. Okay. And so, you know, if you look at, I'm trying to think, I think I raised our first debt in 2010. Um, and so it goes all the way back to, to that time period. And so, you know, over the years, you know, we've tapped that market and predominantly used those proceeds to, to acquire MSRs. Um, and then I'd say additionally, we've, you know, we use our own cash flow that we generate in the business. We redeploy that 
uh, are certainly a piece of that back into acquiring MSRs as well. So those have been the primary sources historically, and um, and it's worked well. I mean, it's worked extremely well. And uh, but we, I mean, if you think about some of the other platforms out there, they'll have you know a third party capital vehicle. They might be a REIT, or they might have a partner that's a REIT, et cetera. And so, you know, this is just another way for us to kind of, it's kind of a second or third leg to the stool from a capital raising standpoint. I mean, it, it sounds, I feel like calling it a second or third leg might be kind of underselling the the importance. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the industry has given a lot of focus to the HomePoint deal because HomePoint, as an originator, had, had more of a, a brand and awareness of the of what the deal was and like the, the massive size of the original uh, servicing portfolio that was coming into to your business. But it sounds like Roosevelt might actually be the enabling capability that enables you to continue to scale and increase your like already like market leading scale and scope of the per- servicing portfolio. It's like something that's like, hasn't even been seen before in the industry. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Look, Clayton, I mean, we, we have a balanced business model today, right? We have the origination business and the servicing business and the servicing business, just to give you a kind of a, a scope for that. It's, um, it's around, I think at the end of the second quarter, it was around 850 billion. You know, we were the third largest servicer in the country, largest non-bank servicer. And, um, and, and candidly, I think we'll, We'll move up the ranks with HomePoint, with some other acquisitions. We'll probably be number two, and with you know number one selling assets, we may eventually be number one. And so, it's a massive business for us, and it's in in this part of the cycle, it has been extremely profitable, and it's really you know our balanced business model has kind of proven to be a real strength of ours. And to your point, this is just going to be another catalyst to continue to grow that business. And, you know, look, I would love to dominate, you know, the servicing business for years to come. And, and I think we're well positioned to do that. All right. So I want to hear more about the the profitability, but let's hit on the balanced business model first. So can you give us a glimpse into how the, the legs of the stool work together, how origination and servicing, how origination works inside of a servicing centric business? Um, give us a view, a snapshot of the Mr. Cooper business model today. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we, again, we've always been in origination, in the origination business. Uh, obviously we, in, are well known for our servicing business. And for us today, the origination business is still servicing centric. You know, our largest channel yeah. is our direct to consumer channel. And that channel is predominantly focused on our portfolio. So we're, you know, trying to take care of our existing customers and by offering them any type of origination product that they need to meet their needs. And so, you know, if you go back to, 2020 when rates were certainly in a different place. I mean, that the origination business, you know, was making over a billion dollars a year. Um, and just by retaining, you know, our existing customers. And so it's a very, very powerful, powerful machine. And we kind of measure it based on how many of our existing customers, you know, can't do we keep, like we call it recapture or retention. And, you know, we are at least in the refinance world, you know, over 80%, uh, 85% recapture for our existing customers. If you have refinanced with us before, that number goes to 90 to 95%. And so, you know, it is a, it's a real powerful engine 
you know, within our business and provides that balance. Uh, and then in addition to direct to consumer, we're in the correspondent business. We also, you know, buy MSRs through co-issue. And so those are kind of the, the different pieces of the origination business and correspondent. We were, you know, a meaningful player there, but we're also pretty disciplined in maintaining our returns and, and uh, we just again view it as another way to acquire customers, but but really the the balance is is the beauty of it because you know in this rate cycle you've kind of seen what we've been able to do we've been able to continue to be generate significant cash flow significant earnings um, I think kind of exceed the marketplace's expectations because of the servicing business now if the cycle turns obviously we're investing in the origination business even more today so that we're ready for the next cycle and can, you know, recapture, retain those customers, uh, you know, when it makes sense. So at a, at a loan level, so you have a borrower alone in your servicing portfolio from a profitability perspective, it's best, my assumptions here, it's best just to keep that loan performing in the servicing portfolio. But if they're a candidate for a refi or they're going to do a refi for one reason or another, the origination business helps retain that borrower because um, it's better you than than somebody else where you lose the lose the client and lose the, the loan out of the, the servicing portfolio together, right? That's exactly right. Yep. That's exactly the way to think about it. Yeah. And today, so like, if you from think a pro- about like it, we'd rather the loan just stay in the servicing portfolio and keep performing, but if it's going to refi, it better be with us. <laughs> exactly. hundred percent. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And it, and if you think about today where, you know, the coupons are within our portfolio, you know, there's tons, millions of our customers that are in that three two, you know, 2.75 to 3.75 interest rate range. And so they're not going anywhere. I mean, there's really, you know, no reason for them and, you know, to go anywhere. And so I think they'll be in the portfolio for years to come, which is great. Do you have a, a, a feel for like what percent of the portfolio is under 3% or under 4% or under 5%, like, like kind of knowing some of the thresholds of, of where like refi, refi risk or refi opportunity really starts to, to pop up if interest rates come down to a certain level? It's significant. I mean, I think it's over half is kind of, you know, it, interest rates would have to come down one and a half to 2% for there to be any kind of meaningful uh, retention or recapture opportunities. And so, and meaningful is a relative term. I mean, that still would only be, you know, call it a quarter of the portfolio or, or even a little bit less. Interesting. So you mentioned, you did mention though, you're investing in the origination business. What, what does that investment look like? Is that people? Is that tech? Like what, what do you do to prepare the originations business for an eventual opportunity? It's predominantly tech and, and kind of process automation. I mean, we're really looking at every step of the origination process and, you know, trying to make that more efficient from a team member standpoint, make it, make their job easier as well as from a customer standpoint. So we have something that we call project flash and project flash is really focused on the uh, processing piece of the business and really taking the steps, you know, that a processor goes through to get a loan from, you know, application to closing and really automating as much of that as possible and really making that more task focused as opposed to, you know, just one person kind of does everything uh, and really taking that into bite-sized chunks and making it, again, a more efficient 
an effective process for the team member and the, um, you know, and the customer. And then I'd say the other area we're looking at is what we're calling sales modernization. And that is really trying to make the mortgage professional or the loan officer's experience better as well. Today, you know, they have a pricing engine, they have an underwriting engine, they have, you know, kind of an application engine. So how do we make all that work, you know, in a more efficient, effective way? So that's a couple of examples of where we're making investments. So Project Flash, is is that still a human capital centric innovation so we're breaking apart the processing process into to core pieces so is that creating like assembly line type specialization or is there technology that's taking on some of those specialized tasks it's a combination but it still is human capital you know predominantly but but it's a combination of where we can automate we'll certainly automate and where we can't obviously we'll have you know some specialists working on that piece interesting okay so Jay, the uh, the industry has been through been through turmoil, specifically on originations. We're you know we're looking at a significantly different uh, volume and land, volume landscape than we were eighteen months ago. Um, but MSRs have have performed well, and you, you mentioned the the profitability that you've been able to drive for the business and, and shareholders. Give us a glimpse into how the the servicing business, may, maybe not specifically Mister Cooper, but like servicing business as a whole performs in this type of market cycle and the considerations you have and like how you invest in different parts of a cycle. Yeah. I think, I mean, the simple way to think about it, you touched on it earlier, Clayton is that a big, big driver of profitability is you, you don't have payoffs, right? I mean, amortiza- amortization expense is always going to be a, you know, significant expense um, in the, in the PNL. And that has evaporated, right? It's really shrunk to, you know, a very small number. And so that in and of itself, in this environment, you know, certainly helps profitability in a meaningful way. The other area that we're crazed about is, you know, the the cost. And just like on the origination side, you know, how can we continue to deliver a better customer experience in a cheaper way. And that's where I think ultimately, you know, Mr. Cooper is separating itself um, kind of from the rest of the pack is, you know, we, we are just driving efficiency and we're looking for more and more opportunities to drive efficiency. An example of that would be in our call center, you know, where we're using different tools, some AI tools, some ML tools to really automate a lot of the process. So if you're a customer, you're going to experience some of this and, you know, you call in to uh, the service center, you know, we're going to allow you to self-serve for almost all of your needs. And if you have a more complicated issue uh, or you want to talk to, you know, one of our representatives, certainly you'll be able to do that. But the digital tools that we have now and the capability that we have within the call center uh, it's just, it gets better every month. And so we see massive opportunity to continue to make that better. And that's where we're making a lot of the investments is, is right there. Hey, I'm Alex Bridgman. I'm the director of data strategy at Altos Research. And we have just released my new podcast called House of Data. House of Data is all about how the most ambitious companies in housing are using data to make better decisions and investments. We have guests like Zach Ronstadt, Darren Bloomquist, Alex Villacorta, Ralph McLaughlin, and more. This podcast is designed for housing professionals and executives who want to use data more and build data-driven organizations in housing. 
Episodes come out every other Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. So go ahead and go find it on Spotify, iTunes, go find House of Data and hit subscribe. I see a lot of people who've launched AI tools come up with some cute name uh, for the for the tool <laughs> for consumer interaction, um, the, the Alexa at Amazon, or my friend Tom Ferry just launched Tom.ai, so his coaching clients can talk to, to Tom.ai. Is, is Mr. <laughs> Cooper going to be the moniker, or is there, a, is there some other cute name for AI inside of the <laughs> servicing world? I think we'll stick with the Mr. Cooper, or, or maybe an abbreviated... <laughs> Coop? That, that's Not cute enough. I, I, I'll never forget, and when I acquired housing wire in 2016 and and came into the business it was about the same time shortly after that one of our journalists latched on to this this rumored rebrand of uh, a large servicing <laughs> company in the dfw area to, to mr cooper uh but but man that that rebrand stuck it uh it doesn't even sound it doesn't even sound weird anymore it sounds like it it, I don't know. <laughs> it was you know look it was a it was a bit obviously people were a little shocked at the time, but if, as I reflect on it, it was a great moment for the company. You know, we had, you know, originally we were part of Syntex. Syntex was a large home builder in Dallas. You know, then we were acquired by Fortress, a private equity firm and re- rebranded to NationStar. And the, and, you know, really the company through the last crisis, 2008 grew significantly on the servicing side and really helped a ton of homeowners stay in their home. That was kind of what we were known for. I mean, the, the GSEs really approached us to help them. and But we were very, um, I'd say, operationally focused, very acquisition focused. And the rebrand, it was a reflection time for me and a reflection time for the company. Like, what do we want this company to really stand for, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now? And that's how Mr. Cooper was born. And it really wasn't as much about the name as it was we want – our team members to be advocates for our customer. We want it to be personal. And, and so we did a lot of work around it and we went out and talked to, you know, different uh, lending institutions, financial institutes, customers. And we said, what do you like about your mortgage servicer? Right. And it never was, you know, we love whatever. It was always a person. They're like, we love Clayton because he just helped me, you know, get a modification. He helped me stay in the home or we love Clayton because he helped me refinance and save 400 bucks. And so, you know, we wanted to personalize it and that's really how Mr. Cooper was born. And so as you talk to any of our team members, I mean, they know what Mr. Cooper stands for. They know what our values are. And, you know, it's really a rallying cry for our customers. I mean, how do we take care of them and be advocates for them? But you're right. It was, it was a shock. And I remember going to talk to fortress about the name change and thinking maybe i'm going to get thrown out of the office but they were they were 100 supportive and uh, and it was it was great it's really been a great journey really great journey yeah and yeah, hindsight it definitely feels like the the right decision and has uh made a, a cultural shift from the external in an external perspective it feels like there's been a cultural shift with the with the brand so jay let's let's shift over to to msrs and we know that msr values have performed well in the last few years can you explain to me some of the drivers behind MSR values and like the industry dynamics of um, the, the time that consumers keep their loans and interest rates? Like what drives value and, and how do you think about the market dynamics that are positive for MSRs? Sure. I mean, I would first say, Clayton, that I think we think given where we're at in the cycle, and we've talked about this on a couple of earnings calls, that we think there's going to be more 
MSR coming to market than perhaps we've ever seen. I mean, we've we've said we think there's going to be four trillion over the next two two and a half years of MSRs that are coming that are going to come to market, and that's because of what you know. Some of that is just the origination environment. Originators can't afford to really keep the servicing. Some of that is you know origin, originators are not profitable enough now to keep the servicing that they originated in the past. And then some of that just is what's going on with the banks. And so, and just to, to, for context, you, you earlier said that you are, you're about 850 billion in servicing right now. That's right. Yeah. I think so there's like an opportunity, I mean, not that you're going to win all 4 trillion of it, but like there's an opportunity to grow the business by multiples. Absolutely. And we, you know, we've yeah. again also said that we think, you know, our goal is to hit the trillion dollar mark. There's, you know, no, nothing magical about that, but we think that's an aspirational goal and um, and we think we'll hit it. And so, you know, certainly we'll hit it. We believe in, you know, if not this year, next year. But to, to answer your question on the, you know, the, the drivers of the MSR kind of profitability and performance, certainly prepays, you know, are a big function of that. So how quick, you know, does a loan pay off? And again, in this environment, with, you know, kind of the, the coupons, at least in the legacy, you know, call it 22 and before vintages, you're just not seeing a lot of prepayments. So that that's driving tremendous value. Delinquencies, you know, certainly that is a, a big component of value as well. And again, the housing market's healthy, right? And people have more equity than they probably had, you know, ever before. And so those two, and, and they're employed. I mean, when you look at kind of where employment's at, it's still very, very, you know, strong. And so those factors, you know, probably are the two biggest drivers of the economics around an MSR. And then there's other nuanced things like, you know, float and ancillary fees and things like that. But the biggest drivers are speeds and and delinquencies. So there's obviously like economic cycle trends and housing cycle trends. There's a few long-term trends that are out there. So we've had this um, kind of multi-decade trend of interest rates reducing until this like most recent point where they've, they've shot up at a historical pace. And then we also have a, a trend in the last a decade or so where the average homeowner has stayed in their home for five to seven years has increased up to, up to double digits. How do you think about those kind of secular demographic trends impacting MSRs? And like, do you underwrite any like reversals and like the, the demographic trend of staying in a home longer? Well, I think our view is again, it's every loan is unique. So it's going to depend somewhat on the market, the current coupon, you know, so that, so there's always factors that are going to go into it. But if you think about it long term, look, I think um, there's not an easy fix for the supply uh, answer, right? There's not enough houses out there. Um, there's housing still to me is a local kind of regional type business. And so there's no overarching solution that's just going to immediately put fix the supply problem. So I think from a long term kind of secular standpoint, um, you're going to continue to see people stay in their homes longer. Uh, and I don't, I don't see that trend really changing. And, um, and I personally think that interest rates are going to stay higher longer. I know some people think that you'll see, you know, rates start coming down at the end of this year, <laughs> early next year, <laughs> yeah, exactly. whatever it is, <laughs> Wish, uh, but 
I, I personally don't <laughs> see that. And so, you know, when we buy MSRs, you know, we've had, we've done probably more MSR transactions than anybody. We've done um, more transactions with individual institutions. And so we have a, a real knowledge about, you know, how we would expect that MSR to behave. Like, what do we really think is going to happen from a prepay standpoint? What do we think is going to happen, you know, from a delinquency standpoint? So I think that's another advantage that we have is just the, the experience we've had in the market over, the t- over time. So there's two industry trends that that we've been watching. So over the last several years, we saw independent mortgage banks start to build their servicing portfolios when origination volumes were were growing quickly. And in the last year, we started to see them release some of that those servicing volumes as they've been hunting for hunting for cash flow or whatever the the reason the reason may be. And I imagine that's part of that four trillion that you kind of forecast will will come to market in the next few years. How do you think about IMB's appetite to retain or release servicing or any insight you can provide into the decision-making process of a mortgage bank leader on when they retain and and when they sell? Yeah, I think you probably hit the nail on the head. I think ultimately it comes down to economics, right? When when you're in this type of environment where your origination margins are very thin, in some cases, you know, you're not profitable at all and you're certainly not cash flow positive. I think that drives the IMBs to to look to sell the, the servicing, right? It just it's just the fundamental economics of the business are really driving that uh, behavior, and and that to your point, that's where we see you know massive opportunity, both from a legacy standpoint, so where they did retain in the past, as well as the current production, and um, I think it's pretty much that simple. I mean, it's, it's just very difficult to retain. Uh, servicing in this type of environment, you know, if you if you don't ha- if you're not making a ton of money in originations and you're not generating positive cash flow, do you think it's a smart strategy though? Like, if you're a originations focused <laughs> mortgage bank leader, um, the servicing portfolio is gold. Like, that's the recurring revenue of the mortgage industry. So, like, should yep. like if I'm running a big retail mortgage bank, is it just smarter to like? cut to the bone on the origination side and keep the port the servicing portfolio? Like how, how do you think about like from a business strategy? Well, obviously we're, we're all about the balanced business model. So from our perspective, we, we think the balanced business model is the right way to go. We love it. And to your point in this market, in this environment, we are, you know, the servicing business is just, it's, it's amazing. And so yeah, I think if you can retain the servicing, <clears throat> I think that's the wise choice because in this and in, when you're inevitably we're going to enter a cycle like we're in now, and that's going to really be you know your anchor to kind of get you through that. Now, I would say you know for some originators, servicing's not an easy business, right? Servicing is a pretty complicated business. It takes a lot of investment. You need scale, and so you know I think for some you know, operators and originators are like, look, I, I don't want to deal with that, right? I really don't want to make those investments and and continue to have to make those investments. So I'd rather just stay in my lane. And when, when times are good, I will originate, originate, originate. And when they're not, you know, I'll hunker down, sell the servicing and try to make it through to the other side. But 
having a choice, uh, I think you would you certainly want to keep the servicing. Um, you know, it just makes sense to me. Yeah. Uh, the other big trend we're watching is the activities of depositories. I, I recently had Lee Smith from Flagstar on this podcast, and he talked about some of the advantages of their their recent acquisition by NYCB and what that's opened up from a, a balance sheet perspective. And you know, as a leader of a mortgage bank inside of a depository, Lee has some strong views on the advantages of being a bank in the in the mortgage industry. How do you think of banks' positions as originators or holders of MSRs? Is that a, I think that's a, a trend that we'll see. Like we saw, we saw kind of a reversal, right? Where the, the banks weren't as active in mortgage. Do you think that's a trend that will reverse itself and we'll see more activity from the depository side? I do not, actually. I think it's, um, you'll see the trend continue where mortgage will certainly be a product, but I don't think you're going to see significant investment in MSRs. I don't think you're going to see, you know, significant investment in their servicing platforms. I I just don't see that trend reversing. And with the new proposed capital rules, I I think that only exacerbates, you know, the issue and will lead more institutions uh, to start thinking about, hey, we probably need to sell some MSRs. So that's, if you think about, when we think about the $4 trillion, Obviously, a big piece of that's IMBs, but we also think, you know, we know there's a couple large institutions selling MSRs as we speak, and I think there more more will join that list. I, I think 100%. Go a little deeper there. So we've, we've talked about the Basel regulation, but like what, what are the capital, the new capital requirements that could make banks less active as depo- as originators or servicing companies? Well, I think when you look at, you know, just adding I think it's what fifteen percent additional capital uh, overall. I mean that puts you know comp- a lot of pressure on the banks, right? They need to raise more capital, and when they start looking at you know the assets on their balance sheet and the capital treatment of those uh, assets, I think mortgage is going to be top of the list of one that they either want to sell or they want certainly to do less of. And so, and, and then when you start looking at kind of the the way that they've sliced up, you know, the different capital requirements for the LTVs of the loans, I think, again, that's going to lead to some different behavior in what they retain and what they sell. And so I think it's, uh, again, the overarching theme is there's going to be more pressure to sell MSRs, in my opinion, than, than not. I mean, and we've talked to, we're starting to see more traffic, I would say, in the, um, as we look at MSRs to acquire, you're starting to see more banks come to the table, not with giant portfolios, but it's almost like they're you know testing the market. And then as we have chatted with some of the larger institutions, I think, you know, we'll see, I think they're waiting ultimately to see where the capital rules settle out, but I think the bias will be towards selling. Well, that, that like that gives that gives me a lot to think about because I feel like the there there's a there's a rhetoric out there of depositories becoming in, increasingly attractive. One of the reasons for that is 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 jumbo. So like we've seen property values appreciate so much in certain parts of the country. If you're on the coast, yeah. like a qualified mortgage is almost like you know, non-existent in some cities, like you need jumbo. So if depositories are less active or, or not increasingly active. How does the jumbo market get served as we we look out through the next few years? I think that's and that may be an area where you see 
banks stay involved, right? And maybe some get more involved. So that I view that as an exception to you know what I just said. And we and we really don't travel. We don't travel in the jumbo space that much. It's not a real focus of ours. But to answer your question, I think I think the banks will still participate in that market, although it could be to some lesser degree. And if they, you know, choose to move away from it, you'll see what you see happen all the time. You'll see, you know, originators come in, you'll see the securitization market, you know, come back in a more material way. I think that's how that market will ultimately uh, get served. And you are starting to see more activity there from even some, you know, non-bank entities, um, so I I would put that in a little different category um, than you know what we just talked about. Okay, so Jay, we're in the beginning of what appears to be a relatively active hurricane season, and that's and hurricanes aren't the only natural disaster that's been impacting homeowners across the country. Can you give us a glimpse into how you think about? homeowners insurance and how that impacts servicing portfolios and your your desire or appetite to have loans based in high risk areas like like South Florida who's you know going through another hurricane as we speak with flooding issues. Yeah, I think it's a great question and I was talking to a very large uh, financial buyer recently and one of his uh, larger LPs had asked him to do a pretty exhaustive environmental study, you know, on the portfolio and to really start thinking about some of the trends that we're seeing now and how that's going to impact performance, how that's going to impact losses, et cetera. I mean, for us, you know, we have, um, you know, the, the insurance piece is obviously critical uh, when we buy the servicing. And then we also have relationships with insurance providers uh, in the case the homeowner loses their insurance or they can't get their insurance, you know, we have alternatives for that. It's obviously in some cases uh, more expensive, but um, it's something we monitor closely. We have third-party firms that monitor closely. And, um, you know, I think it's a trend that's worth spending a lot more time on. And, um, you know, when we, you know, what we typically pay a lot of attention to is you know timelines within not necessarily insurance related, but what are the foreclosure timelines and some other things you know within the different um, jurisdictions and states as well. So, because whether it's lender placed or borrower placed insurance, if the if the cost of insurance goes up, that puts por- more pressure on the the homeowner which could put pressure on an earlier prepay because the borrower decides they can no longer afford to live in that location due to the insurability um, or, uh, or default risk because they can't afford to make their insurance payments or lose the house in a natural disaster for, or some other reason. It's like in- increasing insurance costs, not good for servicing, right? No, yeah. not good at all. And uh, again, something we're paying attention to, um, you know, you know, the other, I would say for our portfolio, um, you know, we're predominantly Fannie, Freddie, kind of Jenny. So, you know, our average, we don't do a lot of jumbo. We're not really heavily exposed on the coast uh, just because of the nature of that. And, um, but yeah, that's certainly not good. And it's a trend that, that we need to spend more time on and should spend more time on. All right, Jay, I can't thank you enough for 
your generosity today, sharing your time and expertise. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm excited for for Roosevelt. We're gonna be watching closely and see what y'all are able to do with that RIA capability. Yeah, I'm excited too. Look, thank you for the time, Clayton. I mean, it's been uh, you know great spending time together. I look forward to talking in the future, and I'm certainly happy to update you on Roosevelt as uh, as the, as it unfolds. Hey folks, this is Clayton Collins, CEO at HW Media. I invited Brendan Ath to give you a little more detail on Housing Wire Annual. This is Housing Wire's mortgage-focused event that covers everything in mortgage finance from origination, servicing, secondary markets, and partnerships with real estate, title, and valuation professionals. You have people like Frank Martell, the CEO of Loan Depot, our own Logan Motoshami, lead analyst over at Housing Wire, Sandra Thompson, FHFA director, and even Selene Kalam, who's the CEO of Thrive Mortgage. These executives are taking the stage. What are they talking about that actually applies to you? So they're addressing how are they staying profitable in this business? How are they creating communication flows from the top down and making sure that everyone through the company is driving that business forward? How are they making the tough decisions? It's a tougher market, but even though it's a tougher market, there's still people who are growing. So how are they winning that market share and what does their mindset have to do with that? And so two of the big buzzwords that we use are actionable items and insights and walking away, but that is something we actually took and then went a level deeper to make sure we're we're creating those opportunities for you guys, whether it's on the pickleball court or staying after in the sessions to chat with these leaders at these companies. It's the people you want to be in the room with. You want to be surrounded by people who are growing because when I leave a conference, it's that energy that you want to take with you back to your business as you build up more strategy for 2024 and beyond. That's why we call it the starting line, right? You're, you're starting your business for the future. So that's where I would kind of touch on to start with. If you want to learn more about Housing Wire Annual, visit housingwireannual.com. Or if you're on Housing Wire, you can click the events tab and see all of our events, Housing Wire Annual included. This event is October 10th through 12th in Austin, Texas. We're bringing you a special promo. I'm not even going to tell you what it is on air right now. Um, you have to DM me. So you can hit me up on LinkedIn, Clayton Collins, CEO of HW Media, easy to find, or on Instagram at Housing Clayton. So check us out. Join us at Housing Wire Annual. Thank you. See you in Austin. Thank you so much for listening to the Housing News Podcast. Please take a few seconds to rate Housing News on Apple Podcasts. It means a lot for the show, and we really do appreciate and listen to your feedback. Also, we're gearing up for Housing Wire Annual in October. Please visit housingwire.com forward slash events for full details about our big annual event in Austin, Texas.